everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. This is a Hedgeye podcast. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the Sector Head for Technology at Hedgeye. With me today is Felix Wang, Sector Head for China at Hedgeye. And uh, we are being joined momentarily by Andrew Friedman, Sector Head for Communications at Hedgeye. Um, the goal of our podcast is to discuss uh, thematic or topical things that we, in some cases, haven't had a chance to write about yet. Uh, in some cases, we have written about. In other cases, we like to call it the cutting room floor of research. It's all the process and research work in the background that leads us uh, to our conclusions. And also, uh, this podcast over the last three years has actually taken an important shape Within our processes, it gives us a chance to talk to each other about uh, about research, about difficult equity subjects, about um, different areas that are part at this point part of the process for coming up with our longs and shorts. And you guys get to listen in the background, and I hope that's interesting. Um, and we sometimes host uh, people on the show, as some of you have seen. The last one we hosted. Uh, a Hedgeye subscriber, uh, Ed Hufnagel, had a, a fantastic uh, a value contribution to talk about uh, data wars, the upcoming data wars in a big, uh, large data and AI systems. Today, I would like to start off by asking some questions to Felix. And Felix, if we go back, I don't even remember what date it was, but at some point last year on this podcast, you expressed a very bullish opinion on China and at the time on Chinese equities. And at the time, um, the market just didn't want to hear it. I mean, China was just bombed out, literally bombed out. And I think even I thought I was like, Felix, come on, man, maybe this is a trade, but what are you doing? Um, you're hanging yourself out to dry on trade, but you, you were articulate. Uh, you were passionate. You were thoughtful. You were committed to it. And um, that was very powerful to the point where you even kind of like moved the cube on, on Keith, you know, you moved Keith's dial on this as well. So I, I want to um, touch base on that because it sounds like your more recent views are less sanguine, it seems, from a, from a distance. It seems like you're less constructive at this point. And I just wanted to hear kind of like where you are on like overall Chinese equities, positive or negative, and, and why, if we could start there. Hey, Ami. Yeah, thanks for those words. Yeah, I, look, I, you know, China is always a very interesting market to study. Uh, it's been extremely volatile the past few years. Uh, we were lucky on trying to kind of find the bottom on, on China, but it's volatile, right? Uh, there was my bathrobe days and then sort of right after National Congress, um, you know, we were definitely more constructive in terms of recovery and then definitely after they lifted zero COVID. So China, China's been very volatile. I, I think it had a tremendous record-breaking surge uh, from sort of late November to January. And then it gave all, all of it back uh, in, in late January. Uh, we're kind of back to sort of flattish levels for the year, um, which is sort of on par with the U.S. I think a few things are going on. Obviously, uh, uh, it, it, it was a pretty crowded trade for China um, heading into the new year, just because if you think about, um, you know, relatively speaking, where China's coming out of, it's coming out of, you know, a lot of different cold hurdles uh, in the past few years, regulation crackdown, the um, the the zero COVID policy, and then all the crises we saw in the property market, and then youth unemployment hitting new highs, and then we had the crackdown on different edu on different industries, including education, uh, even food food delivery. Uh, so I I think you know China's going to come it's, it's come a long way for in terms of recovery and recovery is the key word here but the question is the reason why china's stocks have recently lost some of the momentum is because expectations were for a v-shaped recovery and hasn't happened yet 
there is a recovery. Um, we have retail sales out earlier this week. It was pretty good on an offline basis. I would argue online people were expecting higher growth there. But look, it's, it's, it's going to be wobbly. It's going to be uh, volatile. But I, I still remain pretty bullish on China as, uh, you know, as, a, as, as an entire sector just because when you get out of zero COVID policy, people can go around, roam about, play about, talk to friends, watch movies, you know, try to have some sense of a normal life again uh, this year. So from that perspective, you know, what I've been uh, trying to pitch the clients is, is more about, you know, which, which sectors or which industries will benefit more from a general recovery from zero COVID uh, versus others. So from that perspective, it's still a stock market, uh, a stock pickers market in China. Um, but, you know, I, I generally remain constructive, but I've been also staying away from some sectors, which I think could, uh, could see some new challenges this year. Like, well, which sectors do you think will hit new challenges this year? And which sectors are you thinking will have recovery benefits this year? Yeah. So hey, hey, can I can I just add on to that question, Felix, before you answer? And and I guess because I think it's a great question. Um, and maybe in the context of that, like I'd also be curious, like as we think about like this ongoing comp dynamics related to the COVID recovery and the pandemic, you know, is there anything that you've noticed in your sector or subsector that like leads or lags the U S because of where each country is in the pandemic recovery, if that makes sense. And sorry. Yeah, for that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, it's good to hear from you, Andrew. Uh, so I, I think, where to start? Let me, I guess, start in e-commerce where I've been more bearish on. You know, we we were lucky on timing Alibaba. We got in and then we got out near the high and we haven't gone back in. And Baba basically went up the roller coaster and came back down <laughs> pretty fast to where it was. Uh, JD, they're going a price war. They never... Uh, Again, we were lucky to get out of JD as well. Um, during the past earnings call in Q3, the Q4 earnings call was all about the price war, the new subsidy plan. And that stock has also fallen back down to earth. Actually, it never really recovered ever ever since Q3 earnings just because people were thinking, all right, um, Q4 is still another tr- tough quarter for comp related for because zero COVID didn't really get out until... Uh, the zero core policy really didn't get uh, uh, China didn't exit from that policy until sort of mid to late December. Uh, people were still concerned about that. So, you know, for a variety of reasons, but I was concerned on JD for other reasons, particularly on the competitive side. Um, and then recently, you know, even PDD, I think they have they could have some issues, um, but. You know, I still think PDD is, is sort of the safety bunch, safety pet in, in, the, in the place. So e-commerce in general uh, is, is going to see an interesting year. Um, don't forget, last year, e-commerce grew pretty substantial at a rate of change despite all of these logistics concerns and, and from covid uh, lockdowns and so forth. So I, you know, that's one space I'm increasingly concerned from an expectations perspective. It's overly owned, overly long. Um, Baba in particular is a, is a favorite long. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, I would rather look at other areas where I think there could be more hidden value um, and maybe more of a safer play. I, I, I still... You know, I, I've 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 been pitching DD for a while. It's a it's 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 delisted. You know, it's a special situations play. But guess what? That stock has has been a lot more resilient than everything else in my in my space, and it's still up double digits this year. 
So it's a it's a you know it's an offline play, it's a mobility play, it's it's more of a margin play, whatever you say. The only thing that's not a play is it's not listed on major exchange. That's the only thing put you know major headwind left for this company, but it is a major one. Um, of uh, you wanted to restore confidence in in, in a giant like Didi. Um, so look, I I think. I was still trying to find ideas in more of uh, of the offline s- space, movie theaters, um, restaurants, you know, um, tourism place. We we talked in the past about tourism, um, not just tourism within China, but outbound outbound tourism. You know, that's a key growth driver for China this year. People are itching to go out and travel. What are they not doing? They're not doing, they're not glued to their phones as much because they're out out and about traveling. So I, I think that's something to come. And to answer Andrew's question on what could China lead here, outbound tra- travel and luxury. Those are two areas where you will see a rebound first in China and then probably you'll see it elsewhere around the world as it recovers. But I, I think outbound travel is a critical part of this recovery story in China, um, and don't forget, you know, if if Chinese consumers, Chinese luxury shoppers, account for as high as I think some estimates out there, thirty mid thirties uh, percent of the total luxury market, that's high. That's extremely high. So, as long as that control, I mean, that element of China re- recovers, I think, you know global luxury brands will all see a lift from an improvement in, in, in China sentiment. So I, I think those are a couple areas where China could, could lead. Obviously the one issue that no one really talking about, Andrew, and I know we, uh, we, we kind of laughed at this is what's going on the geopolitics front. Uh, and China could actually lead there too, depending on what happens with talks with Putin and Zelensky no next week that is something oh my that god I, it, it's crazy right it is like, crazy to think about it's absolutely I mean, what it, if china and, and like i have no deal, idea like right i mean i have no idea right like who wait, wait 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 tell me felix like you think so basically <laughs> china could broker peace between ukraine and russia like is that uh a real i mean by the way that would be such a poke in the eye for the west right like we're going to take away your Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, here's what I'm thinking, right? So Saudi Arabia and Iran have hated each other for thousands of years um, for a variety of reasons. And the fact that China was able to broker a deal with those two powers was already a monumental feat. Um, Ukraine and Russia... Obviously, this is a much more sensitive issue because there's war involved. But the fact that the foreign minister was able to talk to someone in Ukraine was already a big step forward, despite China's relationship, you know, uh, with their neighbor, Russia. So, you know, she's going to meet with Putin next week, and there's, there, it's possible he's going to have a phone call, at least with Zelensky. Dude, it could happen. If that happens, the whole market will be on fire. I, I mean, you do you do realize that, like, yeah, nobody like that is in that is in nobody's bingo. Nobody's card. talking about this, right? Yeah. Like, like not only is that like okay, so then it's not just China, right? I mean, like, think about like commodity prices, and it, I mean, it's incredibly deflationary. Am I am I wrong? Like, I mean, obviously, like asset prices. Mm-hmm. Right, like equity markets would go much higher on any type of resolution, which may be perceived as like reflationary or whatever, right? But like, but if you actually think about it from like a commodity input standpoint, from like all the factors, like food prices and everything, like right, it, it would be like it would be incredibly, I guess maybe disinflationary is the right term, but like really positive for growth. Right, like animal spirits, people like green shoots. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be positive for everything. Uh, trade, you know, relationships. Uh, I, I think the only thing, yeah, I agree with you hundred percent, Andrew. I mean, that's it's good for the disinflation story. I mean, that will definitely 
the Fed will cut rates, start cutting rates if that happens. So I, I, I think, look, I very few people believe any kind of peace deal will happen. But look, the fact that China is already going there and talking to Putin and Zelensky, who else is doing that? No, no, and that, and that, right. I mean, like politically, right? Like, I mean, so didn't Xi just get like reelected, right? Like, I mean, he's not really, really reelected, right? But like, he just got reappointed, basically. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, so, he's so, it's a third term, basically, life. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So, but like, just think about it, right? Like, if you're China, right? And I'm just putting on, like, I'm just putting on my like tinfoil hat here, right? Because this is just fun to talk about and speculate. You know, I'm not. Like just anyone that's listening, like just bear with me here. It's not. I really am. I'm, this is these are largely uneducated ramblings and thoughts because I think it's really fun to talk about. Um, <laughs> but, but like, like if you're China, right, and you're trying to like increase your power on the world scale and make everyone else look like a bunch of fools in the process, right? Um, then yeah, like I mean, doesn't that just put China and actually Russia too, like? in a much stronger suit, like much stronger position in the long term, like strategically? Uh, I mean, look, I, I don't think by doing a program peace deal, it makes everyone look like idiots. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think China's in an interesting position to be a mediator just because of their relationship with Russia. Um, but, but like it makes, sorry, not idiots. That's probably not the right yeah. I used. Yeah, it's probably more like, it just on a relative basis, right? It just makes China and puts them in such a better position, right? In terms of power and influence on on a you know in a longer term, right? Like it 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 and in many ways, like if, if Russia has this alliance, like stronger ties to China, then as a result, like then Russia also advances more so. Right, like they're in a much better spot. Am I? Like, um, do you agree or yeah, disagree I, with that? Like, I'm actually not an expert on China-Russia relationships. I think we will need to speak to someone. Yeah, who, no, that's clear. I'm just like I'm just like shooting off the hip here. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just fascinating. That's yeah, it is, it, it, look, it, it is a potential sort of black, a white swan event, if you will, um, that could really erupt the markets if if it does happen. I I just think very few people are probably thinking it, you know a peace deal is possible. But if anyone can do it right now at this point, it's probably China, just because everybody else is a lot more polarized on which side to be with. Um, obviously Russia, you know Ukraine, they both want different things. Um. But war is tiring. War is expensive. War is costing human life. You know, there there's a lot of things to think about. Uh, and China, at least on paper, at least through the media, at least through their meetings, have been depicting themselves as a peace mediator. Um, and, you know basically saying, you know, we don't want any kind of military, uh, uh, any kind of influence there. So I generally think if they continue on that route, at least from a PR perspective, this makes sense that they will want to talk to both parties, sit them down and try to try to have a peace offering. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm just really thinking about this now, actually, because uh, I, I wouldn't know how would that would impact the markets. I think the markets would literally be on fire for a few weeks as people try to understand the implications of this. Um, but we're just speculating, right? Um, it's not that simple. I mean, I, uh, it's uh, if it was that simple, it would have already been done. But I, I do think China is trying to lend the hand um, and try to stop this. Um, the best way is to convince, you know, Russia that it's hurting them um, by doing this, uh, and also Ukraine at the same time. So, cooperation, collaboration, friendship. Well, maybe friendship is probably not the right word, but collaboration, <laughs> cooperation is generally the best way forward um, for all parties. So. I'm hopeful something happens. Um, at the very least, maybe, you know, we could see uh, reduced military fighting. Um, 
But uh, look, China China's important in that part of the in that part of the world right now. Um, By so, the way, so Felix, we'll just a, a footnote on that is that in the just taking a very raw economic uh, view of wars, the U.S. Uh, usually uh, finances either one or both sides, and either um, equips one or both sides, and then. Also, uh, you know, Nobel Peace Prize on the on the you know kind of the end of the war, uh, so that goes to the you know fam- you know lots of people get you know famous or whatever t- cover of Time Magazine type thing, and then but more importantly, um, the brokering of the peace also means that the United States and the West lead the rebuild uh, that follows, uh, and there is a massive rebuild coming for Ukraine and probably for parts of Russia as well. I mean, Russia's military. So it'll be interesting if China is doing this in part to uh, in part to take its sort of share and win business for its uh, military industrial complex for the rebuild in Ukraine and take its share there and kind of block the United States uh, a little bit from that uh, from being a benefit on that side of things uh, too. Uh, it's just something that it 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 smacks me as extremely savvy politics by China. Uh, and and totally uh, probably catches uh, Western uh, political decision makers by surprise. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, Ami. Um, look, I, I think uh, it's it's a known fact that you know China and the U.S. are compa- are a big competitors in terms of vying for different types of infrastructure projects around the world and so forth. Uh, but but I generally think people are sick of this war and it needs to end in some way um, and fashion. Um, and I'm glad that China is at least on paper, right? We don't really know uh, the behind the scenes, but at least on paper, it looks like they're trying to talk to both sides. So look, I, I think if they can get you know parties in the Middle East to like each other, why not? You know, East Asian. Um, countries to like each other or not like each other but to right. have some kind of agreement so that's right, that's right. i think i um, think that, um, it's possible this kind of competition between china and the united states is very very healthy right like it's just like you know absolutely competition for leadership competition for peacemaking competition for diplomacy competition for business very healthy for the world. Everything has to go into acceleration in a good way, right? Like not like people killing each other, but people, but growth. Um, I think that's really bullish. Um, that kind of, if that's the competition that frames us, this, if this cold war isn't, isn't about stocking ICBMs and it's about um, building uh, multilateral diplomatic economic bridges and I think that's interesting is that in the last two years, the U.S. has tried to ring fence China a little bit from a diplomatic and economic perspective and remind China to play nice and not to attack Taiwan and blah, 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 all these things that they've been trying to do. And China is uh, breaking out by responding in kind uh, rather than breaking out militarily. They're breaking out by building a sphere of influence economically and politically that uh, that will you know, maybe one day rival the United States' uh, sphere. So it's kind of an interesting, um, uh, an interesting time to watch that and, and would be a much healthier uh, type of Cold War for the next 50 years than the one that, that you know, kind of like put uh, Russia and, and the United States or Soviet Union and the United States against each other that was uh, destructive, uh, really, pretty much, other than for stockpiling uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, The Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data-driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. Felix, I just wanted to come back to Cycle for one sec. You mentioned that um, you're bearish on e-commerce 
and you're bullish on like offline, like movie segments and travel. Um, Andrew, some of this like uh, took me into your sector and my sector also because like, I don't know, I, I, I think, you know, you and I are, are both living in post pandemic life for a very long time. But, like I was recent, not that long ago, seeing clients in California. And I have to say like California is still flashing the, the scary signs to its population and, and, and telling them to be fearful of the pandemic, at least Northern California. Um, so maybe there are still parts of the United States that are still like recovering um, and uh, which, which would be good in the United, you know, for our sectors, you know, good for like bad for e-com, let's say still on some kind of comp basis and good for offline movie segments and travel. I, I'm, I'm speculating, but it doesn't sound so far off. Um, I wanted to, I, I, you know, feel free to comment on that, but I actually wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, if I can jump in, you know, what? I, I have a question for you guys. Like, um, you know, because China is now just coming out of this uh, uh, very painful zero COVID policy for uh, that lasted, you know, multi years. Maybe you guys can share with our listeners, you know, what happened with the U.S. Um, when similar trends, uh, you know, when so, people basically, <laughs> you know, stopped doing the COVID test or and basically try to have a normal piece of life. Uh, which segments benefited first? Which ones really suffered? That would hey, be yeah. Um, so just, I guess, the most obvious. Um, is there like a live nation equivalent of China? Um, like, <laughs> like, like live entertainment that's not yeah, like uh, um, Tencent Music, I guess, will be. I mean, but that's more off online. I, I don't really yeah, know, but it's like, like a concert. Is there like a concert promoter or like, you know, something like that? Or like ticketing, like a ticket master of China? Um, there is, there is. Um, yeah, if they're public. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, they're that they're more but they do ticketing of everything like movies and events and stuff like yeah that. so like that that comes to mind like because that will um especially since it just kind of reopened right like that's that's something that will probably still you i would think right without knowing anything about china specifically that it would be early on in the recovery curve um and that it probably wouldn't be until later this year next year right assuming that things continue down the path that they're on with reopening no additional shocks in the negative way uh that that business should do really really well um and then um right and then like really uh it would be negative for kind of anything like digital advertising would be negative right um ultimately like it would be negative for engagement trends Right. That's at least what we saw, you know, like into reopening uh, uh, engagement trends for digital social media, especially just plummeted and then eventually search. So I don't know, maybe that's negative for Baidu. Um, just shooting from the hip again. Uh, you know, if there is a reopening, like advertising dollars are typically positive because it's like, you know, especially brand. Um, but Ultimately, that you would have to, you would want to look for some type of negative inflection, probably sometime in the next year, uh, in on the revenue trends because digital advertising would ultimately follow those engage those levels of engagement. Anyway, that's that that's my super high level thinking on it. If that's helpful, absolutely. How about you, Ami? Uh, I'm. I'm kind of, I, I don't know, even know if I could be articulate on the COVID and post-COVID subjects. I'm just so, I'm brain dead on that at this point, um, Felix. I'm sorry not to be so, so helpful, but I, I would speculate, you know, restaurants and, and hotels and, um, and air travel are big recovery areas that comp really, really well in, in terms of incremental uh, revenue and incremental profits and, um uh, and yeah, that e-commerce would be a laggard, an ongoing laggard across all of that. Um, but I wanted to actually, uh, Felix, if you don't mind, I want to, I was, I want, I want to pivot the question a little bit. In, in that vein, actually, like I wanted to pivot the question a little bit to Andrew to Telco Services, if we could just take like two minutes on that, Andrew, um, because from the 
and I, yeah, this does come from a cyclical post-COVID blah, 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 thinking space. So it's not totally brain dead from COVID, but it's like, um, there is a connection. I promise, uh, probably for us, it's not worth me trying to go through all the mental layers of my head to try to connect those two things. But, but coming to telco services for a second, um, we saw like a big push on 5G from the equipment side. Um, we've already seen that bloom come off for the equipment providers, which means that they're no longer getting growth in equipment orders for the new generation, which means I imagine carriers are like enjoying the benefits of the new 5G while not spending a lot more on it. So there's, it should be like a good, I imagine a good free cash flow period. So there's a multi-layered question here. So is this a good free cash flow and dividend period for the telcos um, enjoying the benefit of 5G that they've already spent for? So that's question one. And then question two is um, that I know this is maybe, I always treated this as science fiction, but the more cars um, become almost like a moving entertainment center, streaming center, et cetera, um, with increasing amounts of telemetry data and whatnot, the more, and also uh, the more that uh, wireless cellular challenges, home broadband fixed line um, Wi-Fi, you know, in certain areas in terms of like, in terms of, capacity and, and consistency and, of, and quality of connection, um, the more I feel like, and tell me if I'm way off on this, but the more I feel like 6G probably starts, 6G investment probably starts, right? Like, I mean, like, because there, there is a growth story for carriers, for the pipes at least, around all of that. Um, and and it's not, it doesn't seem like science fiction today for some reason. Like, I'm like, sort of bull I'm sort of starting to think bullishly about that and I always dismissed it before as science fiction tell me it's a two-parter on, on telco services tell me what you think yeah I mean I guess on the first point um you know we're kind of past peak in terms of 5g spectrum implementation right so that all these companies bought a lot of uh mid-band spectrum uh for upgrading their networks to 5g um so we're in terms of pops covered, like we're more than halfway through that curve, uh, more like almost uh, two thirds actually. Um, you know, different companies are at different points in the implementation, but uh, yeah, I definitely think we're kind of at this, you know, peak to past peak level of capex um, for the tel major telcos, uh, being T-Mobile, Verizon, AT and T, where it's becoming more of a free cash flow story as capital intensity that uh, comes down. Um, I think, um, and this is probably maybe like feeds into your second question. Um, the reality, and this is probably not surprising on me because this happens almost every cycle, right? With every new kind of like 4G, like technology wave uh, is that people get really excited about it and it attracts a lot of capital. And these companies spent a lot of money on spectrum. Uh, and what they're actually finding out is that there's just really not much in the way of incremental use cases for 5G today, uh, either on the, um, at least in terms of like new innovation, right? Like that would require increased intensity of usage, um, you know, on the mobile side. Uh, and, and, and not only that, like, it's not just like consumer facing like games and stuff like that. It's like, even on the enterprise, right? Like there was that whole bulk, there still is the whole bull case around enterprise 5g applications, edge compute, things like that. Um, and it just, it today just has not manifested itself, right? Like at least in a way that these companies can monetize. So what the carriers actually find themselves in uh, is almost like in a position of excess capacity um, where they have too much spectrum. Um, and so they've been using that excess capacity to, to, to try to monetize it via uh, fixed wireless, right? Which is what you just said before. It's like home internet service, um, but, you know, over the air, uh, you know, through a, um, getting it from a tower. 
Um, and so that's been influencing the broadband market. Um, I think, you know, longer term, the question just becomes like, as soon as there's a better, higher return use case for that capacity, uh, whether that's through, you know, higher charging higher for data plans, or if the enterprise segment comes to life, uh, and you can, they can start charging a lot more for that. Uh, then maybe the fixed wireless piece, they start kind of um, fixed wireless ends up looking more like a bridge, right? To get to, you know, until we get to this, whatever end state is, then, you know, anything maybe super durable. Um, but I think that probably um, limits like 6G builds, right? Um, because it's, uh, I mean, 6G will happen. Uh, it's just that, I don't think it's happening anytime in the next five years. That's it's just kind of my take on it. Because again, like a lot of these companies still haven't, they're not going to be done. Like we're not going to be done with the 5G build out complete for probably like another two years. Right. And then you're going to want to go through like a monetization phase, a cash flow stage. And then, like I said, like in terms of spectrum, there's still a lot of excess capacity that they can do with 5G that where the products just don't even exist. And so, um, I mean, if 6G necessitates that, right? Like 5G ends up just for some reason turning out to be complete bust and that they have to just skip it and go to 6G to try to monetize. I, I don't, you know, I don't think that's the case. Um, so I think it's a little bit too early is my take, but at the same time, like, I tend to be a little bit more like concrete in my thinking, like focusing on like what's there today. And I can think about for the next two years, less so like bigger pictures. So sometimes these bigger picture things, like just all of a sudden, like smack me in the face and I wake up, I'm like, Oh, wow. Um, that's just kind of my own bias, but I don't think we're there yet. If that was helpful. Yeah. Very. I think that's also like a difference in our focus areas because um that was like very helpful your area it's exactly that like post build uh excess capacity a little bit hype washing off uh you know they went around marketing you know bs for a long time and now the bs you know has you know the truth has come calling and the carriers all have to admit that all of that was bs and so there's no like strong appetite for you know this excess you know just everything you just said I'm on, I'm focused on the semis and the hardware players who this is actually the point where the carrier starts to the noodle them like, Hey, like actually if you could get a 6G, then all those things we weren't able to deliver in 5G, all those promises will actually come true. So yeah, like, yeah maybe, I mean, I think that, I mean, and, and Ami, this is like definitely your, like, I'll defer to you on the expertise here. Right. But like, I just think that there's a lot that they can do with 5G, right? Like a lot based on the spectrum and the, the way they've architected these networks. Um, that especially then you all, and especially too, like with um, like fiber rolling out to the home, fiber infrastructure rolling out um, across the country too, from a fixed line basis. And like, you kind of seeing like this convergence trend between mobile and fixed line, um, where it's less, you know, either, or it's more together. I, I guess I would just, I would just imagine that from, from your seat, like there's just gotta be more use cases for 5g, right. That don't exist today that may require that more semis or, you know, than actually having to go through all the way to 6g. Does that, does that make sense? Like, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't even have like 5g phones, capable phones, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's still very early um, in, in the whole 5G thing where it's, it's, I, I think it just really comes down to like use cases, right? And building products and building services, right? Because like nobody's incentivized, right? To necessarily build the products or build the services until we get to a point where the infrastructure and the capacity is at a place where anyone who's building that or making those investments can actually build something that can get to scale very quickly and monetize, 
right? And so I, I feel like we're more like in that stage where the 5G applications have, are on the come, right? Where we've been building out the 5G and then, you know, maybe, and then over the next maybe five years, right? We see like the rise of applications and products that are tied to 5G and the enterprise leveraging all the investment in the network that's been made in the last kind of several years. And then probably don't start talking about like 6G until the end of the decade. Because there's the other thing too, it's like, it's so much capacity, it's so much throughput, uh, like the speeds that you can get on a 5G, especially on an ultra capacity network or some, or with millimeter wave spectrum, uh, it, it is very advanced. It's just, there's just no real tools yet, right? Like, it's like, maybe like killer app, right? Is like the, is the, like the overused term, but like, there's no like five killer app where someone's like, all right, with 5G, we can do this. And here's the obvious benefit and value to the consumer and to the enterprise that is completely enabled only because we have 5G. And I think that's probably on the come still. So I would just be like, it just seems like it's probably further off, but that's just, I could be wrong. That's, but that's my take. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, I think that from a carrier perspective, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's very helpful. And I think you're right. And we're probably going to go from 5G to 5G advanced. And there's going to be like a long, like farming out and it won't be for a while before there's real 6G service launch. But um, so I'm not really talking about the carriers laying down like big checks, um, but getting the equipment guys to begin testing and begin putting things in network and things like that might be already like middle of next year. Um, uh, because of that, the way that cycle kind of like plays out and works, but, uh, we'll see, I, I, I guess I need to go back and see what the equipment guys are talking about and seeing, you know, what they're saying. Um, but that was a very helpful answer because it's good to know that there's this like, you know, ongoing capacity feature, like excess capacity, to, so to speak, in 5G and ongoing discovery of use cases and ongoing proliferation of 5G rather than kind of like, it's not, it's definitely not, it's not been, uh, the kind of uptake that uh, that is like, you know, record pace and, and we're already out of capacity. Um, that was my last question for this morning. Felix and Andrew, I don't know if you guys had a question you wanted to throw. Yeah, yeah Felix, just really quickly, and we don't have to like, you know, this could be a topic of another call altogether, but um, just like, do you like, do you think that like China will just give up TikTok? Like even if like, even if it's just the U.S., like completely willing to divest it and take no ownership or anything. Uh, just curious, like, how would you ascribe the probability of them just saying, like throwing up their hands and giving in? Um, so my understanding is... Um, ByteDance's relationship with the government isn't that strong. So uh, I, I actually don't necessarily think the Chinese government um, is too worrisome about TikTok being banned in the U.S. From their perspective, yeah, it, it's worrisome to ban something. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not it's not going to lead to any kind of national security issues from, 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 from their perspective. Obviously there is from the U S perspective. Um, my, 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 my whole take on this issue is, uh, I think there's a lot of politics that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, many people are not talking about it, particularly from, you know, one party wanting to keep TikTok in the States just because, you know, I don't know how many, I think you may know the numbers, but at least a hundred million people are using this product uh, in the US. So, and they're mostly on the young generation. So as it, as it pertains to the election that's coming up next year, uh, you know, that could have some implications on maybe losing the younger vote if you do something like this. So what ends up happening maybe is to save this type of scenario, you force ByteDance to sell. Uh, 
Um, we've seen this before, right? With with uh, with Trump a few years ago, uh, but this is a little bit different situation, in my opinion, because this is more politics um, on. But I guess I guess I guess a few years ago it was all politics as well. So at the end of the day, it's it's, it's more politics, right? And how do you are you going to save TikTok or are you going to not save TikTok? If you're going to save TikTok, you don't want it in Chinese hands. Okay, well, that puts ByteDance in a difficult spot because what can ByteDance get out of this deal? Um, which is probably nothing. Uh, you may get some valuation out of it, but they obviously want to keep TikTok in the U.S. if possible. I'm actually thinking about it from a different angle because, yes, it looks like there is a growing possibility that TikTok could get banned. Is that actually hurt by dance uh, with the with their opportunities uh, in other parts of the world? I would say the reverse. I think right now TikTok is already they're already diverting a lot of resources to the U, the U.S. operations in TikTok. If that goes away, yeah. There yeah. could be opportunities, but that's beside the point. That's a different discussion. My point here is how is this going to, you know, unless they force ByteDance to divest. Well, that's, that's what it seems like. I mean, it seems like that's what they're pushing. For. Well, they're right. But, but like, it's, it's because of a certain group of lawmakers are pushing that. Well, just because, I mean, it's all, it's yeah, but I mean, it's like right? CFIUS, So it's like, it's all the most important part of the government, right? Like, it's uh, like they yeah. had like the, they were trying to figure out a way that like TikTok could still operate in the U.S. Right. Like through the Texas Act where like things would be held on Oracle servers and there'd be like firewalls put in place. But it really it's seeming more and more that that's just a no go where there's because they still can't as long as China has any ownership whatsoever. Um, even with these security, in, uh, you know, this infrastructure in place, uh, there's still ways that they can get around it. So it looks like they're trying to play hardball and basically saying like, look, we're either going to ban you or you're going to have to sell and give up and not retain any equity ownership, right? Like just clean cut. And I just wonder, like in that game of chicken, like does like who blinks first, right? And it's just, Maybe we just don't know, it, but it's just going to be like you can see the two trains on the track, right? Just like going full speed at each other. And, uh, you know, someone's sitting there with the switch and it's like, all right, is someone is it going to be the US or is it going to be the or China that's going to, you know, pull the pull the switch to make sure there's avoid to avoid a, a collision or, you know, is are, are they going to collide and are we going to see a ban and then there's going to be a little bit of chaos that goes on. Uh, I don't know. It's just, yeah, uh, I, look, I, I think it's a sensitive issue. Right. And then, and, uh, um, TikTok CEO is going to present to Congress, his perspective, uh, I believe next week. Right. Uh, so he'll have an opportunity to be on the big stage and address the concerns, but I actually think it's a moot point. I think the lawmakers already made up their mind. Um, the question for them is: Is it, are they going to hurt them in the elections? To me, this is a this is something that doesn't get talked about enough because at the end of the day, they are elected officials, and they need to be considerate of this, and then see if there's going to be any kind of precedent going on, not only for TikTok but for any other foreign-owned app in that's in the U.S., not just Chinese, right? So I I think there's a lot to think about. Um, and based on what I've been hearing, Andrew, I mean, this is just from what I've been hearing, there's been some pushback on a ban on TikTok. So the question here is, is it going to be a sale to a U.S. entity? Um, to me, that's the best scenario for the U.S. is to get control of TikTok. But the problem is, how can you convince that to the China side? Um, that you know, There's no doubt. They want to keep TikTok. The question is, with you know, can it be with U.S. control? I I, I think at the end of the day, you know, you got to look at what happened with Trump a few years ago when he did this, and then compare it with today and see if there are any legal differences. Um, maybe you and Paul can speak more on that. I don't know. To me, it seems like it's very similar. 
uh, to what happened when, you know, the failed Oracle bid, the failed Google, uh, the, the failed Walmart bid and so forth. So I, it, we could see another, you know, something similar along that kind of route. Um, but this time there's, there's growing concern, right? Versus last time it was more politics in, in banning anything China. Um, so I, I, I get it. I think, you know, TikTok has their work cut out. But I also don't necessarily think it's going to raise huge changes in geopolitical tensions if TikTok is banned. Um, I, I, I generally do not think ByteDance is that close to uh, many regulatory bodies in China. So uh, it's not it's more of an issue. It's more of a perception issue. Right. You're you're, you're banning our product. Um more than, oh, we have to keep this product in the U.S. So um, I, I think it's, it's, it's you know, at, at, in, in terms of impact to my space, it's going to be very narrow um, rather than, you know, full-blown increase in geopolitical ten- tensions. That's how I feel. Got it. Okay. Cool. Uh, I, I, I think, Ami, mean, maybe this is a, a good time to, to kind of wrap up and then we can definitely go into more details on other issues uh, next time. It's been a fun discussion so far. Yeah, Felix, I, I, uh, I got a lot out of it. Um, I got your, your views, your bullish views of China, your, your recovery areas that you like, the comp areas you don't like. Um, we had a pretty interesting discussion about geopolitics in the middle there about China and Ukraine and Russia, and we had um, we had a carrier conversation with Andrew about excess 5G capacity and the push out of 6G, uh, and we finished with some TikTok uh, to be or not to be TikTok. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. This has been season three, episode six of Unscripted Equity Curiosity, a Hedgeye podcast. Have a great day. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.